If you have your Bibles, as I hope you do, we'll be in Revelation chapter 7. Uh, we have been in the book of Revelation for the last uh, few weeks, and we're looking at Jesus' reign, the church's hope. And so, uh, I was reading and studying this week, and one commentator, and, and I just liked how he began his, uh, his chapter on this chapter, and he wrote, In Greek mythology, Achilles was the son of the nymph Thetis and the human king Peleus. And when Achilles was born, his mother Thetis tried to make him immortal by dipping him, in the, in, him into the river Styx. His only vulnerability was found to be um, where his mother was holding him, and the water did not touch him, uh, right on his Achilles heel, which was the one spot of weakness. And, um, and I liked it because he brought it up because he just, he touched on, the writer touched on, we have this desire of invulnerability. We have this desire um, to not be hurt by things. And, and that's largely what we're looking at today as we come into chapter 7. We're going to see that as a church, in a sense, we have this invulnerability about us. And we're going to look at this, why this is and how this has happened um, our main point today is that God guarantees the protection of His people in tribulation for His glory and their good. So that's, that's what we're going to be looking at today. In this chapter, it serves as an interlude between the 6th and the 7th seal. So if you've been tracking with us and you know where we're at, we looked at the 6th seals last week. The first 4 seals are judgment that comes upon humanity. Uh, the 5th seal shows that there will be martyrs, the saints will be martyred, and has a picture of them praying to God. And then when we look at the 6th seal, that is God's final judgment coming upon unbelieving humanity and creation. And then before we get to the seventh seal, there's a pause. There's simply a break. There's an interlude. This also happens in the trumpets. You have six trumpets, and then before you get to the seventh trumpet, there's an interlude. And each of these interludes function as a means of strengthening the saints. And what we saw last week is that in chapter 6, the four horsemen of the apocalypse will come. They'll bring judgment upon the earth. And as a result, many Christians will die. And in fact, we saw though that the death of Christians is never in vain, but rather God uses them. He uses the death of, of his children, the death of the saints, as the means of spreading the gospel into all nations and ushering in the return of Christ. And so that's what we're, we're seeing here today. And so before we get to the seventh seal, we come to this interlude, and this interlude is meant to strengthen the saints. It's meant to help us persevere and stand firm in this tribulation. Because remember last week, we see in the tribulation, saints will be martyred. How do we stand firm? That is the function of this passage here. Now, Jesus didn't have to give us this vision that we have. He could have just referred us back to chapter 1, right? Chapter 1, we have this glorious vision of Jesus as our king, as our great high priest. He holds the keys of death in Hades. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death. He has conquered Satan. He could just say, refer back to chapter 1. This is why we do not need to fear. But rather, when we're in Revelation, what Christ does, what the God our Father does, He gives us many reasons for how we can stand firm in our faith. And so this interlude is now meant to be a catalyst for sending the church in boldness into the world that we would proclaim the gospel at the cost 
of our lives. It's meant to encourage us to take up our crosses as Christ did and live as he did. And so um, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read uh, Revelation chapter 7. And so what I'd like you to do is stand here at Timberline. We stand at the reading of God's word. We do so because we believe God's word comes with his full authority and it is sufficient for the equipping, the correcting, the rebuking of the saints for the purpose of the ministry. Revelation chapter 7 verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribes of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribes of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. I encourage you, go home and do that later. Just read that out loud without getting your tongue twisted. Uh, actually, it was very hard. Verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let me pray. Oh, Father, we thank You for this vision. And Lord, we just pray that now, as we've opened up Your Word, Lord, we just ask that Your Spirit would work. That you would take your message in this word and you would apply it to our hearts, strengthening us today. And God, help us to see your love and your grace and your mercy, your care and your protection for your saints. Help us to see your love. God, may we know that you are with us at all times. You have never left us. You have told us you will be with us to the very end of the age as we go and make disciples. And Lord, may we see 
that you are with us, protecting us, guiding us, strengthening us. And may we be in awe and wonder and humbled as we look at this picture of heaven, as the saints around your throne worshiping you, seeing how you care for us for all of eternity. God, may our gaze today be lifted from this world. And may it be focused upon your throne room. Lord, we love you. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may have a seat. Um, So the passage is largely broken up into two sections. We kind of have two visions. We have an earthly picture of God's people, and then we have a heavenly picture of God's people. The earthly picture is verses 1 through 8. The heavenly one is 9 to the end. And so we will look at these kind of separately and then show how they function as a means of strengthening the saints. So we start with the early or the earthly picture of God's people, and we notice that there's a sealing that takes place. The vision begins, we have four angels at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds. Notice the number four is used a lot. Four in apocalyptic literature always refers to the earth. We have the four winds of the earth and so the four corners of the earth. So it's these angels are standing around the earth and they're holding back the winds. So what are these winds? Possibly they're the judgments that come from the four horses in seals one through four. Uh, But what it appears is that they're they're judgment coming upon the earth. And these angels, they're going to hold them back until what we see, the saints are sealed. And we see that there's an angel ascending from the rising of the sun with a seal of God. And he shouts out, verse 3, Do not harm earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So these four winds that are being held back by these four angels are going to come and appears they're going to be causing destruction, which will probably lead to what we saw last week into the fifth seal where saints will be martyred. But before that happens, what we have is these winds are being held back as this vision goes forth to show, hey, before the judgments come, let us know that, that the saints are sealed. So what does it mean that God's servants will be sealed on their foreheads? Now some believe that this will be a physical seal. It will actually be some type of visible sign on the foreheads. Possibly. However, in apocalyptic literature, what we understand is, is so much of it is symbolic. And so very likely this is going to not be a physical, visible seal, but a a symbolic, um, invisible seal. In fact, if we go to chapter 14, verse 1, we read of this same 144,000, and we're told that God's name is written on their foreheads. And so it appears that this sealing is God placing His name on His people, which is probably the very same sealing we read about in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 4, that the Holy Spirit comes upon believers sealing the saints. So why? Why does this take place? Why is a seal so important? Why is it necessary to have God's name written on the saints? Well, in first century, a seal often represented ownership masters would put a mark on their slaves and their servants to show that they own them your slave would have your mark on them someone else's slave would have their mark on them they were able to be distinguished by the marks livestock would also be branded to show ownership so very likely this is god showing these are my 
people. He is sealing them, placing His name upon them. Seals also represent protection. One thing we've said is as we're going through Revelation, it pulls from so many pictures and images from the Old Testament. And in Ezekiel chapter 9, I encourage you to go back and read the chapter later, but God is going to send His angels into the city, into Israel, to destroy those who are blaspheming His name. So these are, this is Israel, largely God's people, and He's sending angels to bring judgment upon them because they're blaspheming His name. But before He does this, this is what God says in chapter 9, verse 4. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So all those who are grieved over the blasphemy, all those who are grieved that God's name is not being glorified. So the ones who truly worship God, he's saying, I, I, I want you to put a mark on their foreheads. So this group is marked. We'll say that's this group. Okay, so that, that's good for you. And this group did not receive the mark. Sorry, they had to choose. Um, verse 6 Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. So it's two groups of people. This group receives a mark. This group does not receive a mark. This group is spared. This group will not be spared. Doesn't that also take you back to the Exodus? Remember, this group, Israel, they put the blood over the doorpost. They have the mark of the Lamb. This group does not have the mark of the Lamb. Suffering and judgment comes upon them. This group is spared. And so what we see is that oftentimes the sealing not only represents ownership, but protection. So before these winds of judgment that are going to be coming, it appears this seals to show God's protection and His ownership over His people. Now, before we look at why and look at how this functions more, let's make sure we know who this 144,000 is. And so in verse 4, John gives the number of the saints. He says, I hear 144,000. He doesn't see it, he hears it. And then we're given a list of 12 tribes. We begin with Judah because that is where the, uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah comes. That's where Christ comes from. But other than that, this is a very strange list. I encourage you to go back. You will not find another list like this one in the Old Testament or anywhere else. Um, <clears throat> there's interesting things like Dan is not listed. Ephraim is not listed. And rather, those who are always listed, now we have Joseph is listed and Levi is listed. Now, the Levites were not normally listed among the tribes because they had no inheritance of the land because uh, they worked within the temple. And so this is a very strange list. So we just need to take that as a mark, okay? Something is, is interesting here, and there is a lot of reasons that commentators will give. And we will skip all of those um, because I have no idea. Um, but they make really good cases. Uh, and so again, when we come through Revelation, there's some things I believe we, we can know very clearly. There's some things we go, well, we're pretty sure it means this. And there's other things that we just go, that's interesting. So that, that's where I land on that. So who is this 144,000? Uh, so some are going to say, well, this is ethnic Israel. And it, it is looking at the restoring of ethnic Israel from the Old Testament. And that is a view that has been uh, very popular here in America. Um, however, 
I, I tend to think that it refers to the church. Um, and, and the reason I believe that is because Christ comes as the new Israel, fulfilling all that Israel did not do. He comes as the true Israel, and thus all who believe in Him are the true Israel in Christ. And so that is how I see the, the New Testament comes and builds upon the language of the Old Testament. Um, and so if that's true... And don't believe me yet, um, but if that's true, then that means there's 144,000 that we read about that are sealed and protected is the Jews and Gentiles, all the people who make up the church. So this is being written to you and to me that we are sealed and that his ownership is upon us and his protection is upon us. Now let me just give a few reasons why I believe that, so don't just take my word for it. Um, Old Testament terminology is, um, regarding Israel is applied to the church throughout the New Testament. So the promises made to Israel are regularly given to the church and find their fulfillment in the church. Um, things like in chapter 1, verse 6 of Revelation, we read that the church is being called a kingdom in priests. Now that is rich in Old Testament language in Exodus 19.6 when God brings Israel out of, the, out of Exodus, out of Egypt, and brings them to Mount Sinai. He says, I will make you a kingdom and priest. And so here, John is taking that language just as 1 Peter, Peter does in 1 Peter chapter 2. And he applies that to the church. In fact, verses 15, and 15, 16, and 17 here in chapter 7 are given in Isaiah 49.10 for the restoration of Israel in the Old Testament. And we find here, they find their fulfillment in the church. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. The true children of Abraham are those who are in Christ. So you want to know who Israel is? It's not those who necessarily come from Abraham, those who are in Christ. Romans 2.29. The true Jew is one who has been circumcised in the heart. In fact, interesting, in chapter 2, verse 9, and chapter 3, verse 9, when we look at the seven letters that are given uh, to the churches, unbelieving Jews, you know what they're called? Unbelieving Jews who persecute the church? Synagogues of Satan. Just, just let that just sit. These people, with the promises that have been given to in the Old Testament, when they reject Christ, here in God's inspired word, they're being called in synagogues of Satan. So, one more reason. It follows, this passage follows a pattern that we just saw in Revelation. In, John, in chapter 5, John hears who is worthy to open the scroll. You remember that? We, we, have, we, we have a problem here. God the Father has a scroll. We must open the scroll if the contents of the scroll are going to be unleashed, if they're going to be poured out, if God's will will be carried out here on earth. The problem is there's no one worthy to open the scroll. So we, we need someone. And then all of a sudden, someone appears. And we hear who it is. And who is it? It's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then we're told John looks. Does he see a lion? A lamb that looks like it was slain. So, so he hears something, and then he sees something. They're both referring to Jesus, but they're two different 
pictures. And here, what we have is he hears 144,000. Who are these people? I hear this 144,000. These people, God's people. And I look, and what do I see? Verse 9, a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And so I believe it follows the pattern that we just see. Both are referring to, to one group of people, the church, Jews and Gentiles. And so if that is correct, then, then how does this earthly picture, how does this picture function to strengthen the church in the tribulation? We always remember context. We can't go past context. Chapter 6, tribulation is coming on the earth. Many saints will die as they proclaim Christ in the world. So the question that would surely arise as the church is reading us, as these seven churches and, and who else would have received that, uh, these letters, as they read Revelation, they're going, we're going to die. Many of us will go forth and we will die as we share the gospel. We already saw that in chapter 2. Antipas from Pergamum was killed. We see Smyrna in chapter 2, verse 8. They're being told, look, you have 10 days of persecution coming. Some of you will die. We've seen that throughout the letter. And so now, as they've been told, your death, our death, will usher in the return of Christ. Surely a question is, can we do this? Can we? we endure. Can I really take up my cross and boldly go where I know it will cost my life? And we have chapter 7 where God comforts His people. He says, I know exactly how many people I have. Do you know that? He says, I know that to the number how many children i have just as we read in matthew chapter 10 verse 30 jesus knows the hairs on our heads and not one sparrow falls from the sky without his knowing he knows exactly who his children are and he guarantees the protection of every single one of them now of course we surely understand what protection means here chapter 6 we see saints will die so protection we must not go oh, well we are achilles and we just walk through nothing will hurt us that's not the picture the picture is nothing will overcome you. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Not even death. Christ knows us. Do you know He knows you? If you've trusted in Christ, you are sealed. God's name is written on your forehead. Do you know that? His Holy Spirit has come upon you as the guarantee of salvation. There is nothing, not death, not famine, not pestilence, not wild beasts, not anything that can change that. We might be sheep among wolves. Remember that we've looked at that. We might be sheep among wolves, but we do not need to fear the wolf because we have a lion and he has sealed us. Jesus at his death and resurrection, he has conquered sin, death, and Satan. And he holds the keys to prove. Don't you just love that imagery? He holds the keys of death and Hades saying, look, it's got no power. I have the power is what he's saying. What do you fear? I own death and Hades. They will not harm you. So when asked, can we go into all the world risking our lives for the sake of the gospel? Yes, we can. 
Some of us were in Lebanon this last year, and some Syrians, uh, Christians who were from Syria, came over, and when we worshiped together, and we, we studied God's word together, and they were so excited about going back to Syria, where there was much persecution, where there was much problems, and there was much trials. And you know what their hope was? You know what their goal was? To share the gospel, because they were so confident that it saves and they knew it might cost them their life, and yet they knew nothing will separate them from the love of Christ. It's amazing when you're in countries, and when you see people who are in persecution, who are in suffering, and they see that, they, they don't necessarily fear that. They have such an understanding of the protection of Christ, and the call for the gospel to go forth, that people would truly have life. So this vision is meant to propel the church into the world. Yes, we can go. Yes, we can go accomplish the Great Commission, going into all the world, making disciples. Why? Not because of your might. Not because of our power. Not because of our programs. Not because of our techniques. Not because of what we offer. But because we have the gospel and God is with us, strengthening us and protecting us right up until the moment that he just says that our role is done. He takes us back up into heaven. No matter what, nothing separates us and his gospel continues to go forth. That's how I see this first vision operating. This is the earthly vision that we have. And then we we switch as we go into verse 9. To a heavenly picture of God's people who stand before God. And if you notice, we have um, in verse 9, we have the words after this. And in verse 1 of chapter 7, we have the words after this. So let me just give a comment about that. Um, That's not chronology. It's sequence of visions. Okay, it's sequence of visions. John can't see everything at once. So he saw one vision after this. He sees another vision. There is, there is a progression. There is a trajectory that takes place in Revelation. Clearly we see that, right? We have Christ with his church and sending out his church in chapters 2 and 3. And at the end he has gathered his church, his bride in the new heavens and new earth. There is trajectory. Okay, so don't, don't miss that. But it's not just chronological sequence of events we we know that after all just think about this these ceilings must take place before the four horses go forth but that took place in chapter six um revelation is clearly not chronicle the visions of god and the lamb in chapters four and five didn't that take place as christ ascended from this world and rose to christ at his right hand and he's on the throne with the father that took place then not after seven letters were written So we know it's not chronological. Last week we saw the sixth seal poured out. uh, Sixth seal was God's wrath poured out on the world. And yet if we look, it happens like seven times in Revelation. So either we just have the world being destroyed seven times, or it's kind of like we're seeing some of the things from different angles as the visions as a whole are progressing towards the return of Christ. So just when we read after this, just note, is this chronology or is this sequence? Often it's sequence here. And so here in verse 9, we now have, so same, same time, we have earthly vision and then yet we have this heavenly vision that's taking place. And John is now going to see what he's already heard take place. And what does he see? Multitude from every tribe from every tongue, from every nation, from every language 
around the throne room of God and before the Lamb. What do, we, what do we make of that? I just want to give three things. Number one, the gospel wins. You just don't miss the gospel wins. The great commission will be accomplished. Jesus said, go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations. Does that work? Is that going to happen? Yes. Yes, it does. The gates of hell will not prevail against God's kingdom. As we go forth, the church, and we proclaim the gospel, we are pressing back those gates that more and more people would hear the gospel, receive Christ, and have new life. As we go, we can have confidence that our neighbors, that our co-workers, that when we go into Lebanon, to Syria, to any other nation, and we proclaim the gospel, there will be fruit. Maybe not always right away, but we know there will be fruit because there's a people from every tribe, every nation, every language. And so let us have confidence in the gospel. The gospel truly is the power of God to save. Number two, Babel is reversed. Remember the Tower of Babel? Like, I couldn't stop thinking about this when I was working through this passage. Genesis 11, we see mankind just rebelling against God. Remember, there's been a flood, and we think that would have cleansed the earth, but apparently that didn't cleanse the earth because man is still sinful. They have no desire to please God. God has told man, go forth and multiply in all the earth. And man's like, no, we're going to stay here in Shinar. We're going to build a temple, and it's going to reach God. And so then there's super awesome language in chapter 11 of Genesis. You should go read it later. And it says, so, so you have this, they're building a tower, reaching the heavens. So it's, it's, it's big, right? And then it says, and God comes down to their tower. Do you see that? Just that imagery? They think it's so big, and God's like, oh, let's, let, me, let me come down there to your little tower that supposedly reaches me. And, and he, he changes their languages. It changes their languages. As a result, we have all the tribes, we have all the nations, we have all the languages that exist today. Genesis 11 marked great division. They couldn't understand each other, so they divided. They split up among the, among the earth uh, into the groups of people that could understand one another. And we see that division has, has lasted throughout the centuries. There are wars between nations. There is racism that exists today on every continent. Because of sin, we are a very very divided people. But then we look at the church. And what can bring people from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every language, what can bring them together? What can take this diversity of voices that often oppose one another, and what can bring them so that they would all, with one cry, Praise the Father and the Son. It's the gospel. The gospel has the power to overcome all division, all racism, all tribalism. Here's, when you hear people, and we hear it a lot here in America, when we're talking about racism, we're talking about the horrors that are taking place in this world, the divisions that we have, and people say, man, is there just anything that we can do? You see that gospel opportunity that you have there? Yeah, there is. I think I have an answer. It seems to work. It's the gospel. When we hear about racism and division and tribalism and wars 
to take place. What's the answer? It's, it's Christ. What we need to know is that there is one who has come and died on the cross. And what we read in Ephesians 2, that he would take two hostile groups, Jews and Gentiles, and make one new man, Christian. One who follows Christ. The only thing that can bring groups of people who are at war with one another, the only thing that can take away the hatred that we have against each other because of sin is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you. We have the hope of the world. Do you know that? Like we have the hope, but we cannot be quiet. We know exactly what the world needs. Now, they don't believe us all the time. Sometimes they will, but not always. But we know what can bring peace between Democrats and Republicans. You're like, yeah, really? Yeah, the gospel's powerful enough. It can do it. We know that it can be, bring peace between Jew and Gentile. It can bring peace between black and white. It can bring peace between whatever groups there are. Because it's the gospel. It's the power of God. So those are, those are two pictures, but I said that there was three things that I think that we learned from this, um, this people that are coming from a tribe, tongue, nation, language, and they're coming around the throne. Notice what the saints are doing. If you go to chapter 7, look at verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. What is it? Guys, this is our interaction time. So what are they doing? They're standing, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Now, is that significant? Do you know why? Like, maybe. Go back to chapter 6. It's key. Go back to chapter 6, verse 17. God's wrath poured out six seal. Okay? For the great day of their wrath, of the Father and the, la- and, the, and the Lamb has come. Who can stand? Those are the last words of verse 6. Who can stand in the wrath? Who? We come to chapter 7. There's a group standing before the throne, before the Lamb, before the Father. They're standing. So there's an answer. Who can stand? There is a group that stands. Who is this group. Well, if you look at verse 14, I said to him, sir, you know, he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are those who have trusted in Christ. These are those who have been clothed in the white garments of Christ, who have been washed clean by the blood of Christ. Do you see this picture? It is amazing. On the day when God pours out His crushing wrath on all sin, those who have trusted in Christ, those who have been sealed, will not be crushed. Do you notice there is no judgment for you if you are in Christ? It has been swallowed up in Christ. And do you remember why it's that awesome P word we talk about all the time here? Propitiation. Because Christ came, and at the cross, He was our propitious offering. Propitiation means wrath absorbing offering so and in the youth in the oh and you should have saw it so we walked this through the youth this last week ben was teaching we we're teaching on judgment and righteousness and so we walked through justification and what it looks like and clearly we're in romans 3 romans 3 uses the word propitiation and so one of the girls how'd she say it she goes uh so jesus is our wrath sponge and i was like huh 
She gets it. Yep, he's the wrath sponge. Uh, so that was straight from the tongue of the students that we have. So he, he absorbs the wrath. That's what he does. So I don't know if I necessarily use that all the time, but it worked, right? She tracked. She knows it. She can communicate that to other people. Um, Jesus has come that he would absorb the wrath of God. He would swallow it up at the cross so that we who believe in him would have peace with Christ. Amen, indeed. We have peace. We have love. We know we are his children. We know we're adopted into his family. We become citizens in his kingdom. And there is no wrath against us. That's why we stand. So let me just ask you, will you stand on that day? Will you stand? Do you, have you trusted in Christ? You know that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Have you trusted that He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah and He's the Lamb that was slain? He came to die so that we could have life. Have you trusted in Christ? Do you know that God has placed His seal upon you? Listen, you, you can trust in the world. You can do that. You can trust in the world and you can experience the pleasures of the world. They're finite and they will fade but you can trust in them. But over and over and over and over again in Revelation, we're told what the result is. If you want to trust in Rome, if you want to trust in the world, rather than in Christ, there will be judgment against you. So Christ has come that he would save not just a people, but people from every tribe, from every nation, from every language that we would gather around his throne with great confidence that we will stand. And so I urge you, if you have not trusted in Christ today, will you trust in him? What is holding you back? What is preventing you from saying, no, no, I, I don't want those promises. I think I can stand on my own works, on my own righteousness. You can't. Over and over again, the message of the gospel. Apart from Christ, there is wrath. But he has come that we would have peace. I pray you know that. I pray that you know that. And if you do know that, are you going out in boldness? Are you trusting in it? Do you know that it doesn't matter if death comes your way because you will stand. You have sealed and you will stand. Let that strengthen you. Um, look at the praise of heaven. Verse 10. What are these saints doing? They're singing. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Right now, there are saints who are praising God. They're full of joy, praising God for salvation in Jesus Christ. People from all colors, people from all tribes, people from all nations, one voice praising God. And then do you see what happens next? Like the heavenly host, the angels, the four living creatures and the elders, they praise God also. So the saints are praising God. And as their, their praise goes to the Father, it, it encourages the elders and the living creatures and the angels that they praise God. And, and what we have is this amazing picture of their praise. It begins and ends with amen. 
And then in between, there are seven reasons that they are praising God for salvation. So for one, just get this. The angels praise God for your salvation. Do you know that? They love to look at how God works in this earth, and they're looking at how He saves you, how He redeems the people, and they praise God. And they praise God because it reveals who He is, and that's what these seven seven aspects of worship bring about, reasons for His worship. And, And I'm thinking, this is me, there's seven reasons that God is worshiped here. I kind of feel like these are in contrast. If you remember in chapter 6, there were seven judgments on creation. There were seven judgments on humanity. I kind of feel like there's a contrast being made here. Maybe. That's me. So you take that and go where you want with it. Um, But we have this scene of all of heaven bursting forth in praise, praising God. That's, That's a reality that is happening now and for all of eternity. Isn't that good news? Is that good news? That's where we'll be. And I don't think they're bored sitting on clouds with harps. If that's your picture of heaven, I don't think that's what it is. I think it's going to be a lot better than clouds and harps. But whatever it is, however it is that we're praising God, it's going to be good. It's going to be rich. We're going to be full of joy. And the vision could have stopped right here. Like, I feel like we could have just had chapter 8 right now. And none of us would have thought a thing about it. We'd be like, man, that's, that's, that's good stuff. We got, we got the earthly picture. We got the heavenly picture. I'm set. And Jesus says, nope, I got something else I need to show you. And I love this. Like, this last section is so incredible how it continues to strengthen us and encourage us to go forth in the gospel. So what we've already seen so far, we've seen several reasons why we can stand firm. We can stand firm in the gospel, even against death, because we're sealed and numbered. We're protected by God. He won't lose any of his flock. And we have seen that because of the gospel, we will stand before God in fullness of joy, praising him for all of eternity. That's good stuff, right? And yet there's more. There's more. We see in verses 15 to 17, the care of the saints. And so we're just going to kind of walk through this one quickly. Now this is a quote from Isaiah 49.10, in which God is is having a picture of his people coming back, Israel coming back from all ends of the earth, where he would restore them. It's now being applied to the church. I've already given reasons why I see all that. Um, So notice what's happening. Is that he comes along that he would satisfy the saints. Look at verse 15. Therefore, they're before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on his, and so, so that's what we do. We're serving him. And then it says, he who sits on his throne will shelter them with his presence. That word shelter is also the word tabernacle. He will be with them. He will dwell with them. They will never leave his presence. And notice, they shall hunger and thirst no more. There shall not the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. He satisfies us. He protects us. And, and then look at verse 17. The lamb is in the midst of the throne. So, so he's right there. And what does the lamb do? Read it. Verse 17. For the lamb in the, in the midst of the throne will be there. You got, you got the imagery? The lamb is the shepherd. Ha. Huh. Isn't that funny? Maybe. 
See, one thing as we go throughout Revelation, we never forget the gospel. Always just being presented as this lamb. We never leave the gospel. Yes, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the great conquering king priest that we see in chapter 1. Yes, he's, he's the king that we see in chapter 19 coming in on his white horse to destroy the enemies. And he is the lamb. And for all of eternity, the lamb will shepherd us. The lamb will care for us. The lamb will eternally satisfy us. This makes me go back and think of Ephesians 2.7, which is one of my favorite verses. So let me share it. It says, in the coming ages, he might show, so this is God, in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So he says, forever, I'm going to show you kindness in Jesus. And here we have a picture of all of eternity where the Lamb will continue to satisfy us, to shepherd us, to guide us, to meet every single one of our needs. And then we end the vision, God wipes away every tear. This is good. We're sealed. We're protected. We will stand and we're eternally satisfied, protected, comforted, and cared for by God the Father, by the Lamb in all eternity. So let's go forth and share the gospel. What holds us back? What holds us back? It can't be death, can it? You cannot fear death as we come through these passages. It has no power. We can't fear judgment. That's gone. We don't need to doubt, well, will the gospel work? It will. What, what holds us back? So I encourage us. Let's take, as we walk through Revelation, as we walk through the Bible every week, as you're in the Bible every week, let's take what we read. Let's apply it to our hearts that we go forth in obedience to Christ. It doesn't matter if we're young, we're old, wherever we are. God desires to use us for the the sending out of the saints, for the proclamation of the gospel. So can we endure? Can we face tribulation? Can we boldly share the gospel? Yeah. Yeah, we can. You're sealed. You're numbered. You will not be crushed. Judgment is gone. And God promises to care for you forever. So let's pray. Questions? You're always welcome to text questions in, and if we have time, we try to get to them. Um, somebody wrote, and I just love this. They said, not a question, but they gave me comments. So that's great. I love comments, too, um, so you don't have to necessarily ask a question. Uh, why is there a judgment upon creation? Um, that's a good question, because we see that in the six. Uh, we see that, actually, in the trumpets, we'll see that very clearly. The trumpets are very much directed at creation. In Romans chapter 8, we read this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So who subjected creation? The Father did. When, when Adam and Eve, they sinned, when they chose to not worship God, but that they would be the ones who are right, that they would be the ones who they would live for, for their glory, Not only is mankind subjected to sin, and we're all born sinful, but all of creation itself was at that moment subjected to futility. It says, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so, in Romans 8, we read that 
that because of sin, sin did not just affect uh, humanity, but it affected all of creation. Which is why in Romans, Revelation 21, 22, we see there'll be a new heavens and a new earth that will be brought about. One that has no longer been tainted by sin. Uh, One other question. Are the sealed in chapter 7 also martyred? Some are. Some, again, we need to know the death of the saints will usher in the return of Christ. But not all saints will die. We know that. Not every saint will die because of their faith. Not every saint will be martyred, but many of them will. And I do believe, like as we're in Revelation 7, and it says, um, the verse, verse 14, and he says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. So we know they're coming out of a place where martyrdom is not just a possibility, but is a very much a reality. This is the age that we live in, and so very likely many of those are sealed. And just to, uh, nope, not going to. I love, it. there's so many fun things you can start talking about in Revelation, but nope, we'll just wait till we get there. Um, let me pray real quick for the offering as it comes. Uh, we are, and I, 